0: Good morning, church family. It is a joy to be with you this morning. Today is a very special Sunday. We get to celebrate our senior class here at WFR Church. And I just want to say we've got an exceptional group of seniors here at WFR. We have a treat for you this morning. Three of our seniors are going to showcase their speaking talents for you this morning. They've prepared short speeches uh, that they shared at our leadership training for Christ event a couple of weeks ago, and they are going to bless you this morning with some of the words that they've prepared. I want to pray, and then we'll get these guys up here to speak to you today. Bow with me. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for such a great group of young men and young women who have reached a major milestone in their lives. God, thank you, provi- thank you for providing those families with strength and courage and the wisdom required to make it to this point uh, in their life's journey. And I just ask your blessing over uh, the young man and the two young ladies who are going to speak for us this morning. We ask your blessing over uh, this service and over each of these individuals in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Jacob, come share with us, buddy.
1: Hi, everyone. Well, that's loud. Uh, my name is Jacob Laughlin. And uh, a few weeks ago, we were at a thing called LTC, and we were going over a topic called No Greater Love. And one thing that I always heard was the greatest love God showed for us was just him dying on the cross. And that's true, but that wasn't the only way he showed it. Uh, one thing that I've noticed when I have just, like, been around, the hardest thing to do is, like, to just forgive someone who has either hurt you or just done something really wrong to you. And I've, I've had issues with that, and I know a lot of other people have. But, like, you think, how am I supposed to forgive someone who ever hurt me this bad? And the first thing that I'm ever drawn to is Peter. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, Peter was one of the best disciples, in my opinion. He... Uh, <laughs> He was just always there. He was always with God. He was just always there, ready to do whatever he needed to. Uh, and when you go later, right before the crucifixion, God looks at Peter and goes, you're going to deny me three times. And he was like, I would never do that. He's like, you're going to do it before the rooster crows. And later, later that day, Peter goes and denies Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. And... And he does that right before the rooster crows And it's like so easy to him So easy to just deny him uh, And so you would think that Oh he just denied Jesus three times So effortlessly That would be the last you hear of him And I thought that, that would be true When I was first reading through the Bible when I was younger But later down the road You see that It shows Peter again He's out with a few other disciples That went off with him when he ran away And when I think of that, I'm like, why are they showing this again? Why is he back in this? And you hear him say, guys, I'm going to go fishing. And so the rest of them are like, yeah, we'll go with you. And going fishing is something that they started with, which was kind of cool. They were back at the beginning. And while they're fishing, they catch nothing. Not Not a single fish the entire night. Later that night, they see a man on the shore who we know is Jesus. He goes, hey, have you caught anything? Like, no, we haven't. He's like, throw the net on the other side of the boat. And they do, and they catch a lot of fish. Like, a lot. And you hear the disciple who Jesus loved, as it said, say, that is the Lord. And the first thing you see is that Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to shore, where Jesus is sitting there with a fire and some fish already. And while they're sitting there, Jesus looks at Peter and he goes, Peter, do you love me more than anything? Yes, Lord, I love you. And then he goes again, he says, Peter, do you love me at all? And then he's like, yes, Lord, I love you. And he goes, Peter, do you love me? And he goes, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And some people, when we read the NIV version or any other version, it's just, do you love me more than anything? Do you love me? Do you love me? If you read the Old Translations, it's, Peter, do you agape love me? Do you love me more than anything? Peter, do you even agape love me? Do you love me even a little bit? And Peter, do you phile love me? And phile means you love me as basically a brother. And so he lowers it each time. Like he started with the highest love possible, which is like you shouldn't need any more verification. But if you look at it, it's he's forgiving Peter for one, two, and three denials that he did in one night. And it's just one of those things that's so astounding. It's just like God will forgive someone who so effortlessly just denied him. Not a single second thought, just deny, 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 so that he wouldn't be caught. And I can only imagine just how how much he felt when he just heard and realized what he was doing it for. And it makes me wonder, like, when we're sitting here and someone has hurt us, or we've been betrayed, or something bad said about us, like really bad, and you're just like... What am I going to do? How am I supposed to forgive someone who just did this to me? And I think that this story just is one of the ones that just tells you, if God can forgive someone who denied him three times so effortlessly before he was hung on a cross and still came back and was one of the best disciples, it shows that, like, even if we just were to forgive one person or two people or however many people that have hurt us really badly, it shows that no matter what happens, like it could change their lives and make them wonder, hmm, I wonder what's different about them that would make them forgive me for hurting them so bad. But I think if that we were able to just forgive someone, it would change a lot of lives, and it would probably make a lot of people think, I wonder what they have that I don't. I wonder what made them forgive someone as bad as me. Thank you all for y'all's time, and I hope you all have a good day.
2: Good Morning. My name is Hannah Johnson. I'm 18 years old and have been a member at Whitesbury Road for as long as I can remember for most of my life. After high school, starting in the fall, I plan to attend ULM and graduate with a degree in radiology. I've participated in LTC since the fifth grade, and I'm very grateful for everything that I've learned about leadership for the past eight years. I'm very happy the book we got to study this year was John. It's become one of my favorite Gospels, and so many things stood out to me while reading. It was hard to pick just one thing to talk about. One of my favorite stories in John is when Jesus heals a man who was born blind. Something I noticed about this story is it's only found in John and not in any of the other Gospels. This doesn't mean anything necessarily. I just thought it was interesting. This story takes place after the the Jews escape. Jesus escapes the Jews and Pharisees as they try to stone him because of claims Jesus made about himself. Starting in John 9, it says, As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. The disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. I'm not going to read the whole chapter to you today because I have limited time, so I'll summarize. The rest of chapter 9 talks about those who saw this man beg, and they wondered if he was the former beggar. The man insists that he is this man, and he tells them that Jesus healed him. The Pharisees hear about this and investigate the case of the blind man seeing. They question the man and his parents several times, and the man retells his story to the Pharisees several times to try to get him to tell the truth. The Pharisees end up throwing him out of the synagogue. Jesus hears about this, finds the man again, and talks to him about spiritual blindness. The part of the story that stood out to me the most is in the beginning when his disciples asked Jesus about the blind man. Specifically, they asked who sinned that he was blind. Jesus' response to this question is the perfect response. In verse 3, it says, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And he showed the disciples this by healing the blind man and glorifying God. I don't know about you guys, but when I read this, I was in awe. Now, don't get me wrong. All of Jesus' miracles are amazing, but something about this one stuck out to me and spoke to me. And it made me think. We sometimes look at everything wrong in our life as a punishment from God. Maybe you or a loved one has cancer. Your parents got a divorce. Someone you cared about moved away. Your best friend betrays you. You prayed to God to heal your grandfather. But God said no. It's easy to assume God is punishing us. But after looking at the story of the blind man, my perspective changed. Jesus tells us plainly that these things don't happen because of our sins, but to use us to glorify God, which is our purpose in life. First Corinthians 1031 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. I watched a video on Facebook a few weeks ago from Elevation Church, and Stephen Furtick was preaching. One of the things he said was, God creates a situation in our lives so that out of that situation, there can be a revelation. I feel like him saying that is very fitting for the point I'm trying to make. Another example of this in the book of John is the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. When Martha and Mary went to tell Jesus Lazarus was sick, in verse 3, he says, This sickness will not end in death. No. It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through through it. Now back to the story of the blind man. One thing to notice about John 9, verse 3, is it says, So that the works of God might be displayed in him. It doesn't say they will be displayed in him. The same goes for us. The works of God can't be displayed in us if we look at our situation as a punishment from God, but instead as an opportunity to glorify God. It's all about perspective. Now, you may be wondering, how can God use my pain to display his works in me? Now, I don't know the answer to this question, but God does. We try to understand God in his ways, but we can't comprehend and wrap our heads around his power. But if we put our trust in God, eventually things will work out. And one day we will understand why certain things happened. Remember, God loves you more than we can ever understand. And he wants what's best for you. Thank you for your time.
3: Hey guys, my name is Lainey Goodwin. Uh, I'm in the 12th grade, of course. And I've been involved in community theater for over five years now, and I love it. And recently, I was in William Shakespeare's Othello. And Othello is just like any other Shakespeare play in that it ends with almost everyone dying. (laughs) But this play is unique from others because of its character, Iago. Iago, if you haven't heard of him, is considered the most heinous, evil villain in all of Shakespeare, if not the worst of all time. Today, I'm going to discuss the similarities between him and none other than Judas Iscariot. Throughout the course of Othello, Iago is relentlessly manipulating multiple characters towards their own destruction. The scary part? None of them knew that. Iago posed as a trustworthy friend throughout almost the course of the entire play. He charmed people and gained their utmost trust while concealing the fact that he was the most wicked, evil person to exist in the Shakespearean world and was using every bit of his malevolence against the people who called him friend. Judas did the same thing. Now, Judas wasn't evil from the very start. He was, after all, a disciple. But I believe that slowly and surely, he started to decay inside. And Now, he kept up his outward appearance just fine. But we know from reading the Bible that this holy disciple facade that Judas put out was nothing but a lie. We see this in John 12, 4, when Mary takes a highly expensive perfume and rubs it on Jesus' feet. Judas says... Why wasn't this perfume sold and given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. The author John, having been someone who was fooled by Judas and saw how he betrayed Jesus, writes, He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Judas was in charge of the money bag and would help himself to what was put into it. Now, Judas was victorious in fooling the disciples that he was good, but you can't fool Jesus. And Judas knew this. He knew that Jesus knew. And doesn't that make him so much worse? Judas lies, acting pure and good and holy with his blackened, vile heart right in front of Jesus' face. Jesus shows the disciples all of these lessons and signs. But between Jesus and Judas, just between these two, Judas is openly denying Jesus. I believe that we all have free will, but every time that we deny God or ignore the signs that he shows us, our heart hardens just a little bit. And when we do it again, our heart hardens just a little bit more. And Judas had been denying God for quite some time. I mean, he was alongside Jesus. He heard his teachings. He witnessed the miracles and still on the inside, he decayed and his heart hardened. More and more and more. I think our hearts can get so hard that God just intervenes. He looks at us and he says, You've made your choice perfectly clear, so I'm going to use this. Proverbs 16:9 says, And their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. This is a really heartbreaking story. Because Jesus loved Judas. Judas didn't start out evil. He truly started as Jesus' disciple and friend. And we see in John chapter 13, Jesus gives Judas chance after chance to repent. After washing all of the disciples' feet, including Judas's, Jesus says in verse 10, You are clean, though not every one of you. I feel like he's looking right at Judas, saying... You aren't clean, but you can fix it. A few verses down, Jesus explains to serve your master and obey God. He says, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. He's telling Judas exactly what to do. A few more verses down, Jesus is predicting the betrayal. He is telling Judas, I know what you did. He says, very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me. He's looking Judas dead in the eye and saying, please, friend, just accept me. And Judas says nothing. Jesus is willing to forgive Judas. Judas has stolen and lied and done everything possible to reject Jesus. And Jesus still loves him. He is reaching out his arms saying, I will forgive you, just ask. But Judas says nothing. He hardens his heart. I believe that Jesus was truly heartbroken in this moment. And Jesus knew from the start that this would happen, didn't he? But he's here. He is on earth. He is staring his friend in the eyes saying, I will forgive you. And Jesus says nothing. To me, that nothing means I don't care. Jesus then says, the traitor is the one I give this piece of bread to. And in front of all of the disciples, he hands it to Judas. His act is up. Verse 27 says, as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Judas had hardened his heart over and over. And when he accepted that bread, he accepted his fate. And God established Judas' steps. He jumped to the garden, and Jesus had been praying. He had been sweating blood. And Judas struts in triumphantly with his soldiers and his purse full of money. You know what the most terrifying thing about Iago is? Othello never wronged Iago. In any way, he had no motive, and he destroyed a fellow's life. Thirty pieces of silver. That's all it took, Judas. At least it wasn't nothing. Judas looks to his guards and he says, The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Judas walks up to Jesus and does the most vile thing he could have. He acts like his friend. He says, greetings, Rabbi, and kisses him on the cheek. He doesn't even admit to God that he betrayed him. He continues to act like nothing is wrong in the midst of his betrayal. And that is Judas's most disgusting moment, in my opinion. But do you know how Jesus responds? He says, do what you came for, friend. friend? Jesus does not lie. He would not have called Judas friend if he did not completely mean it. He still loved him. He still loved Judas. And that is why there is no greater love than our God's. Because no matter how bad you are, he will still forgive you. He will still love you. And he will welcome you with open arms. It doesn't get much worse than Judas. And though Judas rejected God's love countless times, it was there for him to take until the very end. And the same goes for you. God's love is there, and whether you accept it now, tomorrow, or in ten years, it is not going away. I'm going to close my speech in a prayer. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. Please put your hand over each person in this room and help them to know that no matter what they've done, and no matter how gross they feel about themselves, that you do and will always love them. If there's anyone in here that hasn't accepted your love, please help them to know that it is there waiting for them. Thank you, God. Amen.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, you're not going to hear it any better than that all day today. Uh, give those guys another round of applause. Fantastic job. I am so thankful to be a part of a church that celebrates achievement. Uh, we celebrate your birth. We celebrate your rebirth into Christ. We're, so, we're excited to celebrate this new season in the lives of all of our seniors and all of their families. My family and I are in this, uh, season of life where we're doing homework and sporting events and studying for tests. But the sum total of all those things still doesn't account for the young ladies and the young men that our seniors have become. And that has a lot to do with the time you've invested uh, in their lives, in their families, and in this church. And I thank you for that. I'm proud of all of our young men and women who are graduating this year. And I'm proud of you as a church family for supporting them through this journey. I'm going to close our services with a prayer. While I'm praying, our praise team is going to stand up. We're going to sing a song uh, after I close. And I invite you, if you have a need in your life, to come forward and respond this morning. Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, what an honor, uh, to see, uh, the young men and young women of our 2019 senior class as they have, uh, reached this major significant milestone in their lives. God, no doubt you have had your hand in, in walking them to this moment in time. And I pray a special blessing over each senior and over the fam- families of each senior of our graduating class this year. God, I ask that any person under the sound of my voice that has a need in their life, uh, you would strengthen to respond today. And we just celebrate each of those lives and the lives of all of our graduating class. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Please stand with me while together we sing.